0: Welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at behavioural science and social science and how this is being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name's Stu King, and I've got a background in public health, working in the NHS, local authorities and Public Health England as an obesity and physical activity lead and as a behaviour change intervention designer in my company, Busybodies. I'm excited to be creating this podcast on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, who exists to bring together professionals with an interest in behavioural and social science and public health, and to improve the knowledge and practices used by professionals across a range of industries. You can join the BSPHN for £25 if you're working, and just £10 if you're not working, including if you're a student, to get all the benefits of being part of an active and vibrant network of behaviour change professionals and enthusiasts. Today, we've had some really fascinating guests from across academia, industry, and government, and we've been exploring what they do and how they do it to improve people's lives in the real world. Today, I'm speaking to Jim McManus. Jim has one of the longest biographies I've ever seen, so the interest of time, I'm only going to give you a snapshot of Jim's career achievements and milestones. Jim's 30 years in the public health industry all started as a volunteer and service provider. He's now the Director of Public Health at Hertfordshire County Council and Vice President of the Association of Directors of Public Health. He's a Chartered Psychologist, British Psychological Society Fellow and Co-Founder and Chair of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network. Jim's also a Visiting Professor at both the London School of Economics and the University of Hertfordshire and completed six years as Deputy Chair of the National Institute for Health Research Public Health Advisory Board. So that's a very diverse mix of uh, on-the-ground delivery through the public health system into academia, and includes a lot of politics. So I'm really excited to have you here today uh, to hear a bit more about your career, Jim. Welcome to the very first Real World Behaviour Change Podcast. Thank you. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about how you started your journey to where you are now.
1: Well, I, I guess I was always interested in science when I was at school. Um, my mum was a factory worker and my dad was a, a bus driver. And um, and they were determined that my sister and I would uh, get, have better jobs than they did and better life chances, although I think they did a good job. Um, and my dad one day bought me a copy of New Scientist magazine when uh, we were on a long train journey to see my sister. And then when I got to college to do science immediately after I finished school, I came across this magazine called The Psychologist, published by the British Psychological Society. And that was it. I was hooked ever afterwards. Um, and there was a strong faith motivation in my family as well, because we were Catholic. So there was an assumption that you would do something that was socially useful uh, and socially valuable. Um, uh, and, uh, and here I am. So that's been the case ever since. And that coupled with a kind of in- a curious mind um, has led me to kind of look into how one subject after another can bring insights. So I think I naturally fall into public health because I'm curious. I want to improve the lives of people and populations and I want to be useful.
0: So it's finding that passion from an early age and making sure that you are socially useful with it. Yeah,
1: and... So I was a volunteer when I was a kid. That was kind of drummed into me that you were useful, you did things, Mm. you helped people. um, And I think that's been with me ever since. Um, And one thing I found is that if I've been working at a national level, if I can't see how something I'm doing at a national level is useful on the ground, then I just think, well, what's the point doing it?
0: I think that's really refreshing to hear um and so what if you could talk a little bit about what your current role is what it entails and and also how it involves behavior
1: change why it's important to that role that you're currently doing um so my day job is director of public health for Hertfordshire which is a, a population of about 1.2 million um 37 settlements in Hertfordshire and they all want their own branch of John Lewis um other retailers are available <laughs> um and um we've got the M25 the M1 the A10 and the A1 and uh, the East Coast and West Coast mainline railways running through our county. So it's a strategically quite important county. Mm. Um, Behaviour change is important, I think, for several sets of reasons. One is um, in order to help people lead healthier lives, um, there's a big issue about social determinants So the choices you can make, so poverty, uh, education are all part of it. But actually, if you are able to make choices and when you are able to make choices, being able to maintain the behaviours which are healthy um, is hugely important. I think the second thing um, in behaviour change is it's actually important for the people doing the job. So it's important for clinicians to behave in certain ways and not others. It's important for professionals to behave in certain ways and not others. And if you just let me give an example of um, an unusual one. We have a, a project in Hertfordshire which actually works on young motorcyclists to reduce their risk of accidents. Why would you do that? Well, it's a public health issue because obviously there are young motorcyclists being killed and injured. So we use behaviour change there both to work with the the design the intervention for the young people, but also to design the intervention in a way that the people delivering it are more likely to be effective. So just telling people to change behaviour doesn't work. How do you do it in a way that resonates and actually embeds and stays for the long term? Um, so behaviour change, I think, is quite central to what I do. That's really interesting. And, and is that something
0: in, in terms of the motorcycle uh, example where... Because you are Hertfordshire County Council, you have responsibility for the roads and road safety anyway. And so it is a merging of departments rather than sticking your nose
1: in where it's not wanted. Yeah, basically. I mean, the uh, so from the beginning, when we came across from the NHS, and I think it was right we came across from the NHS because we can do far more. The bulk of health is about wider determinants not about clinical services and outcomes. So it's right that we're in the organisation that can influence most wider determinants. And in England, that's local government. So the county council has um, you know, libraries, um, it has adult care, it has children's care, it has environment, transport, roads, some aspects of planning. Um, and it's also got the fire authority for the county. So we looked across the county and we looked at various functions and then we thought, right, well, we'll go and talk to every department and look at where we can be most useful. Uh, and out of it has come projects on this, The housing projects have come out of it. We're also working on um, recycling and various other things. So it's about using public health skills and knowledge and behaviour change skills and knowledge in a way that can influence the council's whole business. You know, not just a bunch of people sat in a different office with a different badge on who happened to do the same as they did when they were in the NHS. That That's not why I came into public health in Hertfordshire.
0: And is that something that you think is happening across the industry? Do you think that that this is something that's common across the rest of the industry now? Is it catching up with that? And also, is, the, um, is your focus on behaviour change something that's being utilised
1: across the industry, do you think? Or is, are you sort of at the head of a a wave, as it were. I think it's quite mixed. So um, to look at, is public health embedding in local authorities everywhere? Well, I think that in a lot of cases, yes. Um, so I look at public health departments and think, God, I wish I was doing what you were doing. But equally, we had an external review that said people would give the left arm for some of the stuff you do. Um, so you have to be useful. And last year, the County Council's network report Uh, network issued a report on uh, public health in county councils since the transfer and basically the conclusion was since the transfer public health departments have kind of broadened out in their interests way beyond just just what they might have done in the NHS and the national framework for what good looks like in public health actually talks about public health transforming organizations not just running a bunch of services so there is very definitely a very strong movement in that direction um, for many public health departments in terms of the uh, other aspect of the question behavior change I think we've got a way to go because I think there is still a rather over medicalized model of you give people information on the change of behaviour and why would they do anything else? Which, as we all know, doesn't work. If it had worked, we wouldn't be in the epidemiological mess we're in now as a country. Um, so there are several problems with behaviour change in public health. One is the curriculum for training is remains um, not where it needs to be. The second is the level of skills and psychological models and concepts that people have isn't where it needs to be and the third is the level of practice to still sometimes um you know never mind brief advice it's shout a few mantras at people and expect them to take attention of you and why would you
0: and and i mean are you you've been quite vocal about the funding cuts to public health um you know which is quite uncommon actually it's not something that lots of people are saying from your type of position so do you think that that is having an impact and will continue to have an impact on our ability to make behavior proper real world behavioral science work in the real world and not just here's a you know here's a six eight ten week intervention
1: um and we've done our bit we've ticked our box um yes i mean i think i mean i'm on public record as saying i think the public health cuts are a are a, a completely counterproductive it's a cut that will cost more because it will displace people to NHS services and cost more and actually what does it look like to be in a world where your youth service is a tenth of the size it used to be in some places well actually it's a world where young people are developing more mental health problems you know and, and other problems so um, we have cut public health and cost ourselves money as a nation uh, and we need to just not let anybody say otherwise I think uh, does that mean it's harder for behavioural science? Yeah. Why? Well, one reason is because a lot of directors of public health spend all their time uh, messing around with trying to make the budget add up, not actually doing some of the strategic stuff. Because we are very, very pressurised in that environment. On another level, it means that you can't afford the things you might used to be afford. Paradoxically. It could mean that if you take a different approach, which is how you mainstream behavioural sciences competencies, if you can squeeze some money out of budgets to train people and build it into specifications, then you might be able to get a foothold and do it. And I think the successful ones have done that. They've found money to invest. Um, So I would say now is the time to be ambitious and actually try and set out and see how behaviour change and how behavioural sciences can help you. Um, And... It's not just about individual behaviour change, I think organisations as well. Uh, A lot of the applications of psychology, for example, in public health could be done at organisational, not just individual level. I'm happy to give examples later on as we go on.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, You you mentioned that there are good practices going on and you you mentioned that there are some that are behind the times a little bit with that. Can you think of any examples of where behavioural is being either misconstrued or completely ignored and also where it's being done really well, in your opinion?
1: Uh, so, for my view, is the, the lack of behavioural science in the NHS long-term plan. Um, so, for example, you're going to have all this stuff the NHS is doing. Now, let me preface that by saying that the NHS long-term plan has some great things in it, but it's a plan which is 100% clinical when the causes of ill health are 70% social. Right, so um, and we uh, and we have a prevention. What what we're missing is a lack of a, a a vision. Similarly, for the non-clinical aspects of health on the side from the government, uh, the prevention vision from Matt Hancock doesn't cut it because it bangs on about individual lifestyle in a way which we know is scientifically simply not true. Uh, and actually won't make any change anyway. So a really bad application of, I think, poor behavioural sciences is is the way that the prevention vision has been set out by government. Um, What
0: about the um, emphasis on, say, social prescribing in the long-term plan?
1: um, I think a good example of social prescribing is where you, you sit down with people, actually work out their choices, ask what they want... Get them into something that will be useful, and the social prescription itself does a number of things, and and those social prescriptions can actually do not just the social contact, but actually build um, one's own ability to look after oneself and, and empower oneself, improve self, a range of different things. You know, we might talk about self-efficacy, but it's not just that. That to me is a good social prescription. A bad social prescription is where you just tell somebody you're going to weight watchers for ten weeks, or you know. Other Other prescriptions are available, but you're going there for ten weeks, and that 's your lot uh, and there's nothing there 's no context to it and too often we we treat behavioral interventions as if they 're the same impact as a drug, and yet we know that if you and I took the same physical drug treatment, we might behave completely differently. Um, we might react differently and might have different efficacy so this so a really bad behavioral science. Um, intervention for me is where you treat behavioral science like giving somebody an aspirin or an antibiotic,
0: and it's also the the reality of an intervention isn't as direct acting as a drug, for example. It is responding to all sorts of other inputs like a partner, children, time, money, resources, uh, you know, a smoking habit, whatever else. So it it, it really is tricky to make to make the comparison between what a drug can do versus what an intervention can do, because it's so much more complex in some respects. I think you're absolutely right. So you mentioned before a little bit about um, when you're working on a project nationally or locally, it has to have a translation into the real world. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about some examples of uh, where where you've encountered that?
1: Uh, So a couple of examples. One is the uh, National Institute for Health Research work on voluntary and community and faith organisations in public health. So I pushed and pushed and pushed to get that call for research proposals through, and we got it through. Um, And then what I did locally was um, work with some local alliances of organisations to look at their contributions. So in October, we're having a third faith and health event in Hertfordshire, looking at what uh, local agencies do. Um, And uh, we've been working with local uh, Islamic organisations here on smoking cessation, for example. Um, A second example would be um, the whole system's obesity work, where actually we have signed up to be one of the, not pilots, but the sort of second generation of pilots uh, working with two boroughs to actually look at whether we could implement a whole systems approach to obesity.
0: The trailblazer. Um,
1: yeah, so the trailblazer thing. The, the third um, issue is kind of mental health. So I've got an interest in systems approaches. So we've been working for about two years now to look at across the system on where are the things we could do as a system at mental health, particularly building resilience and building public mental health. And what we found, of course, is that actually there's a whole load of stuff and a whole load of gaps. So we're kind of trying to work to plug some of those. uh, So things outside mental health services, like well-being in the workplace, um, uh, mental health conferences in schools, um, anti-bullying strategy, um, mental health champions in the workplace, mental health champions in the council. So we were the first county in England to have every single one of our 11 councils have a mental health champion who's an elected member, and they all have a work programme. So unless we're going to do something at local level, there isn't an awful lot of point in having a national policy.
0: So it's really interesting looking at the national down to the local picture. What I'm, I'm interested in is, is who, who, what individuals does that then affect and how does it affect
1: them? Um, I guess it, well, it's, it depends on whether what you're doing is a service that people can access and buy into or whether what you're doing is something like a regulatory or environmental level approach that benefits everybody, most of whom you'll never meet and never know. Uh, And the latter is, for example, an air quality intervention. So if you put in, uh, if you make cycling much more attractive than driving, for example, or you bring in a rule that cars can't idle outside schools, you, you might never know who you might meet in effect, but it will have an impact.
0: And of course they might not know.
1: No, they might not, not know, and I guess quite a lot of people will never know what, we, what we've what we ever done. So, for example, we now have a rule in Hertfordshire in the forthcoming local minerals plan that if you are going to have a planning application for mineral extraction, you must do a health impact assessment. Now, that's been quite a a, a controversial thing because some elected members wanted us to do health impact assessments, we'd never do anything else. And our view is the, the 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 extractor pays so they have to do it and we scrutinize it, which I think is the better way. Um why are we doing that? Because actually hopefully we will guard against people having health problems in the future. And I think it fits in with our ethos because our ethos is about how do you get people to not need what you do. and there's some things everybody's always going to need like roads you know um hopefully libraries um uh and waste disposal but actually can you get people to need less of it um as a county we are largely dry in terms of water we don't have much of our our water mostly comes through aquifers but in terms of water consumption we're one of the highest rates of water consumption per head in england now that is a an issue that we're going to be working on how do we actually change water consumption patterns you might never meet the people that you you whose consumption patterns you've changed but you have to achieve a change in order to kind of get a sustained um, water supply for the future
0: and there are good interventions that you could you know very clearly use behavioral insights or behavioral science to to impact people's behavior in that that respect directly have you got any any examples of how
1: you might be able to do that um, well we, we're actually looking at that at the minute um, one of the things we're looking at within our environment department is what behavioural insights we can use to kind of um, change water supply um, before we go down to regulatory usage um, uh, I think if we end up with a standpipe ban or a hosepipe ban which we have escaped in the past then that should be seen as giving us an opportunity to use some behavioural insights. Um, but things like, you know, can you put a brick in your toilet system to use less water? Um, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, so there are things we can do, but I think we're at the early stages of looking at that at the minute. And, and is there a chance of, 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 I was thinking very much
0: of, um, you know, behavioural insights team letters about um, electri- electricity consumption and stuff like that? So can we? use something that's helping them compare their water usage to people who are next next door to them like them etc um, so that they can um, because it's very similar if you evolve the water company and say, did you know you're using x percent more than your neighbors uh, here's some ideas of, of how to change so you're using that east principle of making it easy attractive social you know can you provide them with the information that sort of nudges them towards making a change
1: that's a good idea i mean if we can get the water company to work the water companies to work with us in this area i'd be up for that i mean certainly we've two of our district councils have done that approach on council tax payment. so um
0: what do you think we should be doing more of today in public health or across the other in- industries that you've been involved in Um, to ensure that people in the real world benefit from good behaviour change science?
1: Um, I I think there's probably several things, uh, and they sit behind the foundation of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network. One is putting solid, good science that is applicable to be used and easy to assimilate for busy people into uh, the public domain in a way that can be used readily. Um so, things like um, some of the tools and tactics that people can use examples, I think the second thing is to um, uh, get training delivered and uh, across the piece. The third thing is to advocate for policy that's behavioral science friendly so the national strategy was um, something I wanted to to achieve and we we got there uh, and I think the fourth thing then is actually to just start picking areas that look like they would be easy to apply behavioural sciences to and get people who've done it uh, to kind of share their learning experience and also, most importantly, their failures. So those would be the four things for me. But I think that requires a concerted leadership effort. And it's one of these things that, If you don't know what behavioural science is or how it works, how are you going to pick which behavioural science you're going to use?
0: And is that something you think that the BSPHN, for example, should be at the forefront of helping people achieve?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got... So we've got uh, the the network, we've got the national strategy, um, we've got people sharing things, we've got people doing research. We've also got these hubs in a number of areas. The West Midlands one was the first to go where they actually start sharing practical advice and learning with people and give them the confidence to go and apply it. Um, This is... I don't think behavioural science is something you can just read, pick up, read a book, apply it and learn it in the way that you might do. People might pretend you do epidemiology, but you don't do it like that either. It is something where, um, first of all, you have to understand and navigate your way around the field. And that's complicated. So which behavioural science do I use for which? Um, because everybody thinks theirs is the best. Secondly, um, it is a bit like practising to cycle. You have to fall off a few times and learn how to use it. And thirdly, there's th- a thing which I will call enculturation. So I'll nick that word from a, from theology, uh, where you actually have to embed it in a way that fits with the culture of the organisations you are working in. Um And that in itself is a challenge.
0: And where do you think sociology fits into that? Because I know you've got an interest in sociology, and and, and I don't believe that it's been brought into the public health domain in the same way that, for example, the psychology of of, um, the the psychological sciences have.
1: Um, So when it comes to sociology, um, I think the contribution is very polarised. You have an awful lot of academic discourse on sociology and public health, um, largely in some sociological journals that a lot of public health people don't read, so even critical public health. Um, What is the value of sociology to public health um, in practice? A lot of people don't use it. So how could I use sociology of power structures to actually look at relations within a community, for example, and who I pick as my health champions. Because if I pick the wrong health champions, there might be an in-group and an out-group that are used. Second thing is, look at it in childhood obesity. Uh, And there was a a, a Health Foundation publication on different types of evidence that did an example of this. If you understand the meanings of food choice and the meanings of access to people and young people... um, How they interpret food choices and food access, like Wendy Wills at the University of Hertfordshire saying, healthy shops were not for me because I'm not from that community. Um, You can begin to understand how the intervention you got might work wonderfully in theory, but the minute you try uh, implementing it, it will fail dismally because social structures, meanings and the way people live their lives are lived very differently from the even the psychology of how you've conceptualised an intervention. Um, another good example is um, the, the meaning of kinship in, in gay men, for example. So uh, if you talk about family um, and um, suicide... Now, most gay men who have reached their 30s and 40s will know someone a friend in their friendship network who um, has had mental health problems, may even have attempted suicide... If you talk about family, how do gay men interpret family as meaning a service is either for them or not for them because it's for a heterosexual family. And so you could be unwittingly excluding a whole cadre of people from a service who might actually benefit from it, if that makes sense. So I think those are the applications of sociology that are very often not um, applied um, to to this whole kind of field
0: and I, I, I mean our experience in uh, working with families from vulnerable communities and with adults from vulnerable communities and in vulnerable situations like on our gutless programme with the men that we work with often in, in very much the situation you described whether it's because anything to do with being uh, from the LGBT communities or not men do have that sort of vulnerable side that is difficult for them to express hence the suicide rate etc etc um, but the the way I we we believe and we see every day and has always been part of the way we work. Sociology fitting in. Sociology was actually an epiphany of of, of mine. I, I wasn't into it uh, until I did my masters, and then all of a sudden, when I was working with people, I had an epiphany when we started talking about a specific theory of habitus. And now, after you know twelve years of of honing that and realizing how this works in the real world it comes down to the difference between life chances and life choices and what I, what i think a lot of the time we're saying to people is here's some opportunities to make some different choices actually we're not considering the limitations of their choices based on their life chances we do in as much as we're saying you know in the social determinants of health or in the in the way that we di- we, we create interventions uh, we 're saying here here 's here 's more information for you to make better choices, but we don 't understand the, uh, the the depth of restriction that comes from the life chances um, that are restricted for the families and the people that we 're working with very often and i think that 's where sociology has a big part to play in
1: what we 're what we 're trying to achieve here i think you 're right and if you look at the word lifestyle um it's the most one of the most unhelpful wor- words in public health, because it assumes that all health is about individual choice, mm. uh, and and it, and at the end of the day, if you deconstruct that enough, you'll end up with well, don't be poor. Yeah. If if you are poor, stop <laughs> yeah. being poor. Yeah. Uh, be less poor. Be less yes. poor. Because yes. yeah. uh, uh, so, and all it does is victim blame, uh, and all it does is 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 it to the fact that. Most health is not about an individual lifestyle choice. There is a fundamental aspect. If your only food choice is nine shops full of rubbish, you are going to struggle to have a really healthy diet. And actually, um, who was it that worked out that um, the, the, the lowest income quintile um, in England would probably spend uh, all, if not 75% of the disposable income, disposable income ...on meeting Public Health England's healthy food standards. That's not about lifestyle. And a great service of sociology is it can actually look at the social forces and factors... ...and the power structures and the structural inequalities that are behind that... ...and elucidate them. So I would challenge sociology to get us to stop talking about lifestyle... ...and start talking about chances and start talking about determinants... ...and start talking about structural things... There is a real issue about public health, in that I don't think public health is a science at all. So um, uh, so anybody who's left listening to this has switched <laughs> off now. Um, it, it's not science. It's a, it's a mindset that nicks other sciences and other insights. And what we've done is we've taken a load of stuff that's by and largely biomedical, like epidemiology and various other things. Although epidemiology was originally a social science when it when it... Uh, in its first German incarnation in the 17th century Um, we've taken what we think is psychology which is a very poor set of behaviour change models that don't work in the real world and we've ignored a whole load of other stuff Uh, and that isn't a way to practice public health I think we need to get better at it
0: yes, you know, I, I totally agree totally agree
1: um, and so so moving on
0: i wonder if you could talk to us about what you're most excited about or curious about you mentioned having a curiosity uh, for public health and psychology so what are you most excited or curious about in behavior change right now or behavioral science in fact
1: um so so in behavior change right now i'm most curious about uh I'm most excited about the opportunities to take people with multiple long-term conditions and uh work with them in such a way that they, that clinicians understand what's important to them uh, uh, and and don't just treat them as a group of conditions walking into a room and treat them as real people. Because what is important, there's a really nice little piece of research by uh, various people, including the Health Foundation. What's important to people with multiple long-term conditions is being able to live well. I mean, who knew? <laughs> Do you know, there's a revelation, isn't there? So that, that kind of excites me. In behavioural science, what really excites me at the minute is actually how we get clinicians to engage with people walking through their doors in such a way that a meaningful conversation around health and how what they can do for their own health can occur. And how do you train clinicians to do that and incentivise them to do that? Um, I mean, there's a, the University of Southampton has a really nice little thing called Healthy Conversations. So Mary Barker and Wendy Alexander, that kind of is a really good model. Um, I think you have to stop paying uh, GPs for procedures and start paying them for outcomes. Uh, and that's a long-term thing. And I think you have to... Um, we need a, a larger NHS workforce, I, you know, but we need to free people up to do real, meaningful engagement with, with people, not come in, do an intervention, walk out again, and not do it. Um, so the the guy who's my personal trainer also works as a rehabilitation assistant, um, and we often talk um, while we're having sort of gym and boxing sessions about um, his interactions with patients. And how they could be improved just by greater quality human interaction, and the person knowing the kind of conversations to have, and if we could crack that, we could do an awful lot of good. I often think that about hairdressers actually as well. They've got a lot of time with people. Uh, Well, I don't have enough hair to spend to keep very many hairdressers busy. But (laughs) with you, (laughs) but but yes, I think the the hairdresser who does my mum. So my mum has diabetes, and she also has angina and arthritis. Uh, and, and actually a lot of our conversations around our health are done with our hairdresser.
0: Yeah, it's um, just a great social opportunity to, to have a chat with people, isn't it? Um,
1: and certainly when I was in hospital bed with cancer, the, the the most meaningful conversations I had around my health were were two. One was when the chaplain came in um, and the other was when the volunteer came in every day with a newspaper. Mm. I, and, and stayed for ten minutes, and you know, made a drink. Even sometimes, I couldn't even get out of bed. Mm. Um, and those were the most meaningful conversations I had, uh, and sometimes those are the most important.
0: And that's really interesting because I mean, you mentioned having had cancer, so you're you're a cancer survivor, um, and you, you had. So I can reading in your bio here, you've had stage four B cancer. Can you tell us what what that was like, but also you must have had a big period of shifting your own behaviour personally during and after that.
1: Um, So I'm not someone who likes being dependent on the whole. I like being independent. I was brought up to be independent. Um, And um, to be so totally vulnerable that you can't walk five steps without falling actually was a learning experience for me um what did you learn from it uh I I learned about resilience I think I learned about accepting help I learned about not being invulnerable if you let it it presses the if you let it something like this presses the reset button on your life and I think that's what it did with me it was I mean I, I will say this but so um until about a couple of months ago I had neuropathy and half a dead foot and nerve pain uh, and a bit of my mouth is still dead I've got short-term memory loss uh, uh, and some sight loss and some hearing loss and that's mostly because of the chemotherapy not because of the cancer Mm -hmm. but far more good than bad came out of cancer um so I learned not to sweat the small stuff uh, which actually in this job is quite helpful um I learned a whole load of different things. Um, uh, And I also learned actually to rely on myself for my health as much as I could. So one of the differences, my consultant would often say, one of the differences between me and a number of other people is that within about two months I was fully back at work and I was actually at the gym, I took up weightlifting as a way of rebuilding my body. Other people had the same cancer type as I did, which was a, a lymphoma, a fairly aggressive lymphoma. Although I was lucky because it responded it was so aggressive it responded really well to the chemo. Right. So I think I got lucky. Um is that other people didn't do that and of course were um uh still walking with a stick three or four months later. Well there were some funny incidents as well. Um so the there was the time um when they said go and try some walking and what they meant was the little three little steps at the end of the ward I thought what, I thought what they meant was between wards so I went missing for two hours because I got down a flight of stairs couldn't go any further down or couldn't go any further up um, just
0: stuck there so between, I just sat there yeah, limbo.
1: For, for hours hoping somebody <laughs> would come past and eventually somebody did oh, yeah. um, uh, so that was I, th- I mean I thought it was funny I don't think anybody else did <laughs> Um, No, they mustn't have many escapees from those wards. No, no. Although the quality of the food, you wonder, frankly.
0: (laughs) And what about? So, what about your? You must have changed your behaviours. I mean, you said you took up weightlifting, um, and you've got a personal trainer. You've got a very busy job. Um, How do you? How did you manage to fit that new stuff in? What was it that allowed you to do that from a behavioural perspective?
1: I think there is something about um, learning to have a self-care strategy uh, and uh, most people will know I kind of push myself I don't expect other people to push myself I, I do genuinely think I've got a larger capacity for work than a lot of other people cause That's just because I'm used to it uh, um, and so first thing was to reappraise things that used to stress me out but don't now you know got a large workload yeah fine well I'll just get through it and you know I'll manage it um uh, the, the second thing was actually to build in protected time so my Saturday mornings are reading mornings my Sunday mornings I go to mass and then I go to the gym um I try to fit in um several workouts a week and keep that discipline um uh, and, and fit it in so I try to get four workouts in every week and that means the pattern changes and I try to go in at least later in the evening when it gets a bit quieter um, uh, and the high you get from weightlifting is actually really quite good um, so those are some of the kind of ingredients of a self-care strategy
0: How do you make sure you do those? Because the high comes after and everyone... That we've come across, and I've worked in, you know, helping people become more active for fifteen years. It's not the doing it that's usually a problem, it's the getting started for most people. So how do you make sure that you've got a strategy that means that you do get
1: started so that you do realise that high? Um sometimes it's very difficult. So sometimes it is sheer grim determination of I'm going to do this. So um, bloody mindedness. Bloody mindedness. Right sometimes it is actually leaving all the environmental cues so so for leg day i go home and on the dining room table as i walk into the into the house um my 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 gym bag and the leg pad are there waiting for me mm-hmm. um other times it is um setting the alarm clock so i've got the habit and into the habit um uh and also The real thing of, you know, oh, I haven't gone today, well, you know, sod it, I'll, I'll, you know, I've eaten a bar of chocolate, or sod it, I might as well go the whole hog and have fish and chips. I don't do that, I think, I've and that was something from a conversation with you, I've had the bar of chocolate, I've had the bar of chocolate. Mm. That's lovely, I really enjoyed it, I won't do anything else. So, um, so a couple of people, we had a leaving do for one of our colleagues yesterday, and we had afternoon tea. Lovely, nice piece of cake. Well, I've had one piece of cake. I might as well have two. No, I've had one piece of cake. That was a lovely. Nice cup of tea. That's enough. So it, it, it's about not despairing because you have one one lapse mm. that you suddenly can't do this. We call that we call that um,
0: running the experiment when we're helping people change behaviour. So knowing that you're running an experiment means that you. You don't expect to get it all right first time and you plan a little bit better about what's really going what really going on, not just this ideal, idealistic view of, oh, I'll just not eat cake anymore. You know, that's just probably not realistic for most people. Um, and so because you know you might not get it right every time, that actually takes the pressure of it. Isn't this all or nothing thing? When you have a, a mistake, you go, oh, well, um, fine. And even if you did do the blowout that night, it's still okay. And you can just go, oh, well, what what happened there? What would I do differently next time? and the reality is you can just say I am going to have a bit of cake when someone leaves and therefore you don't even encounter that feeling of I've messed up because you actually said when someone leaves my rule is i have a bit of cake with them yeah I'll go along with that
1: that sounds good to me
0: yeah well so you can have more cake now without without feeling guilty Um, and so where can people go, Jim, if they want to find out a bit, a bit more about the um, the work that you're involved in and the things that you, you're, you're doing?
1: Um, well, there's various places. I mean, the first place I'd signpost people to is probably the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network website, um, which is bsphn.org.uk, or just Google Behavioural Science and Public Health Network. Um, most PowerPoint talks I give... Uh, are on SlideShare or Academia, free for people to to, to download and use. I, I don't have a great habit of um, restricting access to these things. Um, the County Council's public health pages are on Health & Hearts, so just Google Health & Hearts. Um, and the ADPH website has some of our policy work, so they would be kind of four places.
0: You're also quite active on Twitter and LinkedIn, so... If people want to find you on there, how? What's your?
1: Uh, oh, it's uh, uh, at Jim McManus Ph for Twitter and on LinkedIn. It's just Jim McManus, and search me up. I'll come and I do try to respond to everybody that messages me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, and some people just, I find Twitter really good actually for CPD because I get links to journal articles I'd never have seen otherwise. Mm. Um, uh, but I do try to
0: respond to people. Great. So finally, what would your advice be to someone who's interested in your field and looking to use behaviour change or behavioural science practically?
1: Um, I, I guess there's several things to do. One is to find a mentor who's experienced in using a range of behavioural sciences and and have a conversation with them. Now, I would say this, wouldn't I, but come along to a behavioural sciences network event and talk to people and listen and ask questions. But I don't think it's contrived to say that because,
0: yes, you are co-founder and chair of that network, but it is I am doing this now off the back of coming and meeting loads of people who are interested in the field that I'm also interested in. So I think it's actually a perfectly valid answer to, to join
1: the BSPHN off the back of that. I mean, well, thank you. I mean, I think I've learned lots of things I didn't know by being a member. Um, I think one of the problems is um, if you don't know behavioural science, you don't know what you don't know. So you might pick entirely the wrong science, entirely the wrong insight. Uh, and, and not all, not all behavioural sciences are usable in all the same situations. So I think you do need to be able to develop a kind of mental ready reckoner of which one to use first. So I would say read the behavioral science and public health strategy because that can give you some insight. Come along to some of the network events, you know, join the regional hub if you've got one. I mean, there's a couple now either up and running or in the off. Um, uh, you know, there's one in Thames Valley. There's various others coming up, um, and then choose which books you want to read, and ask someone in around the field which books. I think the, the other thing I'd say is um, go the the website by Anne Mickey and um, uh, and Peter West. Um this is Peter West. No,
0: I think it? it's, it's Susan Mickey and Robert Susan, West. Susan
1: Mickey and Robert West. Yeah. So what did I say about names? I don't know. I thought it I must be it Susan's all, sister and, and Robert's yeah, brother. So Susan and Robert's yeah. website. So their Behaviour Change Wheel website at the University of University College London, but also their website, unlockingbehaviourchange.co.uk, has some brilliant little um, briefings, short PDF briefings for, for people. So use things like that, um, uh, and it's an eclectic approach.
0: Great. Okay, fantastic. Um, okay, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. It has been fascinating chatting with you today and um, it's really interesting to hear your views on such a wide range of topics even though we're really talking about behavioural science actually you've covered off probably six or seven different industries talking about academia, research what public health looks like at a national level, a regional level, a local level, and then down to the minutiae of actual delivery and stuff. So it's it's really interesting to hear your views on all those different things. Uh, And it's, I think, hopefully listeners will find it really interesting to hear just the broad range of things that you are across. Um, So we're going to be back again next month with another interesting guest who is working in the field of changing people's behaviour in the real world. In the meantime, don't forget you can join the BSPHN, as Jim said, at bsphn.org.uk for just £25 if you're working and £10 if you're a student or uh, not working. Some of the benefits include discounted fees for events, workshops and CPD sessions, access to a network of professionals from a range of fields, and regular publications, as well as all of the footage and slideshows from the recent events and presentations. You can also sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change, and my views on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes. It will take less than a minute and may help someone to discover the great work that's going on around the world in behaviour change. Please also subscribe on iTunes and be sure to tell people through social media. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, I'm on at stew underscore King underscore HH on Twitter. And I look forward to hearing from you soon.